you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. There was an old joke that circulated many years ago, back when I first went in the ministry, about a pulpit committee, uh, what we now call a pastor search committee, uh, but they still should be called pulpit committees, just as an aside, because the most important thing that a pastor does is preach. To fill the pulpit is the most essential quality of a pastor. But anyway, this committee said they were looking for a man who didn't have any slides from the Holy Land and didn't know one word of Greek. Apparently, their previous pastor was quite enamored with his trips to Israel and with his knowledge of the Greek language. So it is with some uh, fear and trepidation that I uh, want to introduce this message this morning with some Latin phrases because I think they will help us in coming to an understanding of what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 6 and they come from uh, a great Christian by the name of Augustine who was a pastor in North Africa in the 5th century uh, and one of the great theologians of the history of the church and he was comparing Adam's state before the fall, Adam's state after the fall, the state of those who have been saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ, and then our final state as believers. And Augustine said that before Adam fell, he was passe peccare, which means able to sin. He had not yet sinned, but he was able to sin. God created him with the ability to sin. After the fall, Augustine said that Adam became non-passe, non-pecare. Not able not to sin. That is the state of all men born into the world. Because they are born in Adam. And they are not able not to sin. They sin, and they're not able not to. Uh, by himself, fallen man is unable to break the tyranny of sin. He is in bondage and slavery to sin. The state of believers who have been saved by Jesus Christ is now one of passe non peccare. They are able not to sin. That's very important because that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6. Paul says you don't have to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have died to sin. You were baptized into Christ. And you have, you have risen and you may walk in newness of life. You are able not to sin. So when a believer says to me, well, I just can't stop this sin. Something's wrong. Either they are not a believer or they are not realizing their position in Christ. That is the whole point of these verses that we're looking at in Romans chapter 6. That believers are able not to sin. Uh, for us, the tyranny of sin has been broken. We are no longer 
slaves to sin. Now in the glorified state, when we die or when Jesus comes for us and we are glorified, we will be non posse peccare, that is, not able to sin. In our glorified state, in the presence of God, we will be incapable of sin. That, that is the greatest thing about heaven, is that sin will no longer dog us. We will no longer feel the shame and the guilt of betraying our Lord with sin. We will not have to confess any sin because we will be unable to sin in glory. We will be absolutely glorified and we will be freed from the very presence of sin itself. Remember that uh, sin or the, the, the freedom from sin can be described as in justification we are freed from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's going to say at the end of Romans 6. We are now being freed from the power of sin. We are now able not to sin. We can say no to temptation. Now we don't do that perfectly of course. But we're able to. You do not have to give in to every temptation. So we are being freed progressively from the power of sin. When we are glorified, then we will be freed from the presence of sin. We will not be able to sin at all. So remember that in chapter 6, Paul is refuting the charge that his teaching uh, that God justifies the ungodly through faith will somehow lead to licentiousness. It will lead to people uh, deliberately, willfully committing sins in order that grace might increase. And he is set out to prove that our union with Jesus Christ is completely opposed to a life of continuing sin. That a believer will not continue in sin that grace may abound. He uses that a very, very, very strong Greek negative. By no means. God forbid. Absolutely not. Ain't no way, dude. I mean, that's what he's saying, okay? It's, it's a pretty stout negative. Rather, our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection frees us from the slavery of sin and enables us to walk in newness of life. But Paul knows that we are prone to forget our new position in Christ. Prone to forget the foundation for holy living. And so he, he hammers it home in these verses. These verses are very important because Paul's aim is that we should live in victory over sin. And all of us, all of us have sins that beset us. They're usually not the same thing. The things that tempt you may not bother me at all. The things that tempt me, you would be aghast. You'd think, oh, my word, someone can't even be a Christian and be tempted like that. <laughs> because, you know, I've told you before the difference between major sins and minor sins. You do remember it. 
It's like the difference between minor surgery, major surgery. Minor surgery is anything they do to you. Doesn't matter what it is. Heart transplant, lung transplant, limb transplant, it's minor surgery. Major surgery is anything that they do to me. Hangnail removed, you know, earwax cleaned out. Doesn't matter. That's major surgery, okay? Same way with sins. Major sins are anything that you are doing. Minor sins is anything I'm doing. Yeah. And that's the way all of us feel. We, uh, we, we, we just, we're just kind of made up that way. So the idea here is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ not only paid the penalty for our sins, but it provided the power to overcome our sins on a daily basis. So the main idea in the passage is the key to having victory over sin in our lives is to realize all of the benefits of being identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. Or to put it another way, don't live in sin as you used to live because you're not the same person you used to be. You have become a new creation. And all things become new. Before you are in Adam. Now you are in Christ. In Adam you were dead in sin. Now in Christ you are dead to sin. That's a very important distinction. We are no longer dead in sin. Now we are dead to sin. And we are alive to God. So Paul is saying... Believe and act and live on the basis of your new identity, not your old identity. So, in the first part of verse 5 and in verse 6 and 7, he talks about the reality of our death to sin. In the first part of verse 5, Paul states the fact that as believers, we have become united with Christ in the likeness of his death. The word uh, if does not express doubt. We could translate it since. Since we have been united with him in the likeness, uh, in, death, in a death like his. Uh, Paul is talking about the knowledge of what God has revealed. Not necessarily knowledge that we've gained by personal experience. This is the truth, he says, because God says it. We have been united with him in a death like his. I said last week, uh, you don't have to feel like the old man has been crucified. It has, whether you feel like it or not. You're to act on the basis of what God has said rather than what you feel. Believe God's word because it's God's word. This is what God says. So, he says we are completely united with Christ in the likeness of his death. When we trusted Christ, we were united to him. The word literally means to be grown together. The word united. To be grown together or to be grafted into Christ. The word describes a process 
by which a graph becomes united with the life of a tree. In other words, it points to our organic living union with Christ. And we share in his resurrection life. How can we have victory over sin? How can I overcome this nasty habit that I have? Because your old man, the old self, has died. And you are now sharing in the resurrection life of Christ. And that gives you the power to overcome that particular sin. But the, the first half of verse 5 is not really focused on sharing his life, but rather in his death. We looked at that in verses 3 and 4. When Christ died, we died in him. The perfect tense in verse 5 means that this union was a past action that has ongoing results now. And this union with Christ means that our unregenerate life is over. We're no longer in Adam. We do not need to submit to the desires of the old man. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. The old self represents what we were in Adam. We're no longer in Adam. Now we are in Christ who is our life. So when Paul says our old self was crucified with him, he means what we were before we were saved died with Christ. There is a complete severance between what we were under the reign of sin and death and what we are now under the reign of grace and eternal life in Christ. Our old life has ended, as the word crucified implies. Here's the problem. If my old self, what I was in Adam, has died, has been crucified, where does all of this desire to sin come from? I, I've wrestled with this for 50 years. If indeed, and it, it, it's not just a, I mean it's an absolute certainty. This is God talking here. Just as certainly as the Bible says that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose the third day, just as certain as that, is this truth that when Christ died, we died. What we were in Adam died when we became believers in Christ. So then, why do we still want to sin? Commentators go all over the map here, you know, on why this is true. Uh, and Paul will command in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to put off the old man Put on the new man. Here is a conclusion that I have come to. All right? Regarding the old man. Now, let me carefully, very carefully say this. If you don't agree with me here, that's okay. Because like I said, I've been working on this for a long time. But here, here is the request that I would make of you. If you don't agree with me on this, don't tell me because I like where I'm at. Okay, 
Most of the teaching that you read in the commentaries will say, all of us have two natures. We have the nature of Adam, and we have the nature of Christ, the old man, the new man. I don't believe that. I don't believe that anything has but one nature. You know, I don't believe a dog can have the nature of an aardvark and the nature of a dog. No, you know, he's just a dog, you know. I, don't, I believe that when we become new creations, when we believe in Jesus Christ, the old man dies. That's what the Bible says. All through the, the New Testament, we are told we are either in Adam or in Christ. The old man dies. Well, then why the propensity towards sin? Ah, there's the rub. The old man dies, but vestiges of that old man that the Bible calls flesh stays with us and will until we are glorified. But we have the power to overcome the flesh just as we have the power to overcome the world and Satan. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three great enemies of the believer. And God has given us power by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to overcome all of them. Uh, now, again, that's not a real popular opinion. I'm not alone in it. I'm not, this is not something that I'm the only one in the world believes. No, most Reformed theologians will follow this line of thinking. That the old man has died and the vestiges of the old man remain called flesh uh, is why we have the propensity to sin. I, I think another uh, equally appealing uh, interpretation is that of Dr. Thomas Schreiner, uh, who is the distinguished professor of New Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He agrees with me about the matter of only having one nature. I mean, after all, he's a great theologian. Why would he not agree with me? No? Okay. I thought an amen would... Uh, don't worry about it, though. It's too late now. But, but Dr. Schreiner says this is a part of the already but not yet tension that informs all of Paul's theology. The old person has been crucified with Christ. The vestiges of that old nature remain. The flesh must still be resisted. Do we have complete victory over sin? Yes, but not yet. Yes, but not yet. It's a little like people ask sometimes, is there healing in the atonement? Yes, but not yet. On my, on my, in my prayer book that I use every day, I have a page where I pray for the sick. And at the top, I wrote several years ago, God always heals his children. I believe that. He heals some of them temporarily. He heals some of them permanently. But he always heals his children. My father had cancer for four months. We prayed for his healing. 
on the 29th day of November 1996, he was healed permanently. Other people are healed temporarily. The cancer goes into remission. I had a nephew who had cancer. It went into remission. He was healed temporarily. It won't be permanent. Something else will kill him. <laughs> Something else will come along. But God always heals his children, either temporarily or permanently. So is healing in the atonement? Yes, but not yet. It is provided for. But that doesn't mean you're going to go through life without any sickness or without any pain or without any sorrow. Is victory over sorrow in the atonement? Yes, but not yet. Is victory over death provided for in the atonement? Absolutely, but not yet. That is something of the same thing here. The old man has died, but the vestiges of the old man remain. It's now, but not yet. It is what is true of me positionally is becoming true of me practically. Positionally, I have been raised into the heavens, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Practically, I'm still walking here on earth. Positionally, the old man has died. Practically, I still struggle against the flesh. It is now, but not yet. I think when Paul says, uh, in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing, a lot of people have taken that to mean that the body is evil. That, that's an old Greek dualism thought that's just not true. Uh, some people have thought, well, it's the body that sins, not the spirit, so my body can just do anything it wants to. <laughs> I think he's saying that the, the body is brought to nothing because uh, our bodies are the means by which our sins are manifested. Jesus said that sin comes out of the heart. Out of the heart of man uh, proceeds all of the murders and fornication and drunkenness and all of those things. But the body is the way that is manifested. And so the verb here, be brought to nothing, means to render powerless or inoperative. We have the power to overcome sin. So that sin is not manifested in our bodies. I believe that when we act upon our new position in Christ, when we act upon the truth that the old self has been crucified, then we will no longer act out those sinful desires that tempt us. We are no longer enslaved to sin. I still sin, but I'm not enslaved to sin. I don't make a habit of it. I don't practice it continually as I did when I was an unbeliever. Verse 7 adds a word of explanation. For he who has died has been set free from sin. Since we have died positionally in Christ, sin no longer has jurisdiction over us. We don't have to obey it anymore. We are, as Augustine said, passe non capare. We are able not to sin. And that is an ability that only believers have. Unbelievers are slaves to sin. They really can't help themselves. They are slaves to it. 
Again, I realize there's a lot of difficult details in these verses. Uh, and yet Paul's overall point is clear. In Christ, sin's power over us has been broken. When you come to Christ, you cannot hang on to your sin with one hand and Christ with the other. You can't say, I can't quit this sin. You know, you, you, an adulterer can't say, well, you know, I, I'm a believer, but I've, I've just got to, to keep committing adultery. I, I just can't help myself. Something's terribly wrong. Again, either you're not really a believer, or you have no understanding of what your new life in Christ is. That's, that's why, uh, for instance, the sin of homosexuality. And people say, well, I was born this way. I can't stop. We were all born sinners, people. I got, got news for you. We were all born sinners, and all of us, again, have different inclinations towards sin. I mean, some have an inclination toward attraction to the same sex. Some have an in inclination towards gambling. I never had enough money personally for that one, but anyway, some have it, you know. We all have propensities towards certain sins. We are born that way in that sense because we're all born in Adam. But now in Christ, we have the power to overcome those sins. We have the power to be freed from the tyranny of sin. So, what are the results of our, of our death to sin? Uh, again, a, a lot of confusion here. Uh, but this is found in the last part of verse 5 and verses 8, 9, and 10. Uh, our sharing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us victory over sin. Now, I think there's some sense that that's present, but I, I think in the, the main, since Paul uses future tense verses, he is saying that in our resurrection, we will have complete victory over sin. We have the ability not to sin now, but there is coming a time when we will not be able to sin. Uh, Paul is saying... Our, our union with Christ assures us one day of a, a state that we will be completely glorified. So that when we face temptation to, to go back into our old way of life and to commit sins that we were doing before we became a believer, we realize that we died with Christ to our old corrupt way of life. We're now united with him in his death and resurrection. And one day, we will receive a body that cannot sin. And in light of that, why would we serve sin now? In light of the fact that all of that is true, why would we deliberately sin now? So knowing and believing the truth of your present position of sharing in Christ's death, and the certain promise of living with him forever, by that truth, you're able to break the power of daily sin in your life and have victory over them. And the certainty that Christ's resurrection provides complete victory over sin and death. We know 
verse 9, he says, we know. That's a causal participle. The thought is, we believe that we will live with Christ because we know that he is now beyond the reach of death. Death no longer has dominion over him. Okay? Sin no longer has dominion over us. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Uh, the promise that we will one day share completely in his victory gives us the desire and the power to overcome sin right now. We often think of, of, of living with Christ forever. That, that when we die, we will live with Christ forever. But an equally great truth that we ought to meditate on daily is we will be freed from sin forever. I, I tell you the truth, the older that I get, the more attractive this becomes to me. People ask me sometimes, what is your great, greatest anticipation in heaven? I won't sin anymore. I will not disappoint my Savior. I will not betray Him by sinning. That's the great joy of heaven to me, is that I will be freed completely from sin. I won't do it anymore. Because I get so tired of it. It's so grievous. It's so terrible. So horrible. That's the great that's the great joy of heaven that we should think about and meditate on and give us present victory over sin. So what are some practical implications of our death to sin? We're going to talk about this more next week. We're going to look at verse 11. But do you realize that verse 11 of Romans chapter 6 is the first command in the whole book of Romans. It's the first command in the book. There, there's not been one before now. So Paul felt it necessary to lay this extensive doctrinal foundation before he makes an application. We're all, we're all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 6, verse 11, so he says, now live this way. That tells me that that real... Christian behavior must always be founded and grounded in doctrine. Why would you preach doctrine? Why would you talk about theology? Because there's no living the Christian life without it. Paul believed that. So did Jesus Christ. You must know the why in order to do the practical, you know. We've forgotten that in the church today. I mean, we talk about a church calling a pastor. You know, most would say it is required of a steward that he be found relevant. Because being irrelevant is the greatest sin in the church today. You know, you got to be relevant. You cannot be more relevant than to know the Word of God. There is nothing more relevant than these truths. These truths are what enable us to overcome the power of sin on a daily basis in my, in my life. There's nothing more important than that. 
Three times in chapter 6, Paul mentions knowledge. Verse 3, do you not know? Verse 6, we know that. Verse 9, we know that. Knowing who we are in Christ is the foundation for how we are to live in Christ. Knowing. Paul's going to do all this doctrine and come to chapter 12 and there he's going to say, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You know something, people. Faith starts with knowledge. Faith starts with knowledge, not with emotions, not with feelings, with knowledge. So Paul's first command in Romans is in verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The word consider is an accounting term. You count it to be true. Why? Because it's true. You can't count things to be true that aren't true. You know, try that with the bank. You know, I well, I, I just kind of consider that I've got a million dollars in my checking account. Yeah, well, that won't work. You've only gotten your checking account once you've gotten your checking account. You consider it to be true because it'll have to be true. Same thing here. Consider it to be true. Why? Because you feel it? No, because you know it. You know. It is true. You don't count it to be true because you feel dead to sin, but rather because you are dead to sin. God says that is the case. It's not a mind game. A lot of people have made this out to be kind of the power of positive thinking. I, I'm dead to sin, so i got to get up every day and say, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin. And if I do that enough, then I'll feel dead to sin and I'll have victory over sin. No. You are dead to sin. That's what the scripture says. Act like it. Act like it. Act out every day what the Bible says is true. Uh, He isn't saying visualize yourself as being dead to sin and you'll act that way. No. (laughs) He says this is the fact of what God has made you in Christ. Dead to sin and alive to God. That's the truth. Think on it. And act that way. Act that way. Let the truth become part of your daily life. Someone tells a story about Queen Victoria, the future Queen of England in the early part of the 19th century. They never told Victoria that she was to be the Queen because they didn't want her to be spoiled by that knowledge. And then one day... One day, her teacher allowed her to discover the truth that she would one day be the Queen of England. And so, Victoria said, so you're telling me that I should be good because one day I will be Queen. And the teacher said, yes. And Victoria said, then I will live that way. I will be good. From that point on, her life was controlled by her future position. She acted like a future queen should act. In the same way, the fact that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection 
should control our everyday lives. The fact that one day we will be not able to sin, that we will be united with him in a resurrection body, should control our daily lives. Let's pray. Our Father and our God,